0: Good morning, everyone. It's a real pleasure to be here with you. It, uh, it's always really a, a joy to visit here. Um, and I don't think it's just because I got married here. It's, uh, that definitely makes it extra special. But, yeah, in some ways this congregation feels like a second family to us, and we're thankful for what God is doing here among you. Thank you uh, for the leaders here for this opportunity to share with you. Would you open, open your Bibles up to Psalm 142. and as you're turning there i want to ask you a question it's kind of a big really big life question and it's this what do you do in between a problem and the solution so i'm really thinking of any any problem but especially big problems a sickness a physical need a, a relational struggle in your life um a feeling of personal failure, a sin that you you are still fighting against, a season of being completely overwhelmed, an unsaved loved one. Maybe what, what do you do between a death of a loved one and, and heaven? What do you do? Psalm one forty two. I'm reading from the ESV. A maskil of David when he was in the cave. A prayer. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see... There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too Strong for me, bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name, the righteous will surround me for you will deal bountifully with me now this is quite the prayer um, and as we grew up uh, if you grew up in a Christian home in the church we all we kind of learn how to pray, and that 's a good thing. we kind of have a liturgy and it and it usually It starts with something like, Dear Lord, and goes into, Thank you for for this day, for this meal, and please, please do this, please bless this person, help this person, and help us glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen. And this prayer looks a little different. And so I want to start, before we dive in, by uh, making sure that we are all convinced that we should also pray prayers like this. Now, This kind of prayer, uh, David uses the word complaint in verse 2, at least in this translation. I'm going to call it a lament to distinguish between sinful complaining and godly complaining. And uh, one author describes a lament this way. It's a prayer to God in pain that leads to trust. A prayer to God in pain that leads to trust. And what I hope you'll see is that because lament is directed to God in in faith, it, it not only glorifies God, it leads us to be more satisfied in God. Now, there's probably different views, generationally even, on the idea of like pouring out your heart in honesty before God. You know, the older generation is going to be like, we just won a war and we didn't do it by sitting around and expressing our feelings, Okay? And then the younger generation is going to tend to say, all we need is, is safe spaces where there's no judgment. And I can, I can pour out my heart on Facebook to the world and I'll just get therapeutic responses and hashtag keep it, keep it kind. Right? And, and of course, neither of those are exactly the biblical view of what lament is really about. So three reasons before we dive into this text why we ought to lament. Number one, because of the character of God. God is big enough to deal with our tears and our questions. Eugene Peterson says, why are Christians of all people embarrassed by tears, uneasy in the presence of sorrow, unpracticed in the language of lament? It certainly is not a biblical heritage, for virtually all our ancestors in the faith were thoroughly acquainted with grief. And our Savior was, as everyone knows, a man of sorrows. End of quote. I find so much comfort in the fact that God is bigger. There's there's no insecurity in God. And so all my problems, all my questions, all my emotions... I can bring them to God, who invites me to call him Father, pour them out in a very unpolished way, and that actually is something he invites us to do. It almost would be something that would please him, because then he has an opportunity to act. So number one, why should we lament? Because God is God, and he's never troubled or ruffled by us in when it's a prayer that we that that's prayed in in faith number two why should we lament because we have the Holy Spirit so John 16:20 Jesus says truly truly I say to you you will weep and lament you will oh, I'm sorry but the world will rejoice you will be sorrowful but your sorrow will turn into joy that's in the end of of the longest discourse on the presence of the Holy Spirit with the believer, Jesus says, you will weep and lament. Why? I thought the Holy Spirit gave us joy and hope and peace. Why are we going to be sorrowful? Romans eight twenty one. We know... That the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. The Spirit tells us what heaven is like and does little foretastes of heaven in our hearts and lives like we heard about this morning. We, therefore, he continues, Grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So we need to lament not because we don't have the Holy Spirit or don't have enough of the Holy Spirit to make us happy, but because we, of all people, know what heaven is like. And as we look around at a world of pain and sorrow and sin, we have this spirit in us saying, that's not right. That's not what we were made for. That is not our destiny. That is not our calling. That's not why God made us as humans. We have the Holy Spirit. And so we weep and lament and groan, groan inwardly. I just spent the last few days with some of the leaders here at a conference on healing and deliverance and I don't know if you've heard of the, the idea of the overlap of the ages. So we live in this in this age where the curse of sin is still here with us. But we also are after Pentecost when we get all these foretastes of heaven, and and God heals people and delivers people and and sets us free from sin. And we live in that that overlap of the ages. And there's, there's a bit of a tension that we feel there where we have to combine a strong theology of, of healing and deliverance. God is able to do anything. And a strong theology of suffering. That everything we face is, un, is under the umbrella of God's goodness and sovereignty. How do we live in that tension? We, we need to lament. So, number one, because of the character of God. Number two, because we have the Holy Spirit. And number three, simply because the other options are quite dreadful. So, a problem happens. What are you going to do until the solution? Whether that's, you um, can't find your other sock. You know, Some problems are, are, are really small, but they affect us in big ways. Especially if maybe you're, you're two years old or three years old. That can be a big problem. Or whether that's, that's huge. And by the way, I, I share this very humbly this morning as someone who has not learned what I'm talking about. Some of you here have gone through tremendous suffering and are living this out. And thank you for your example that for that. But what are our other options? We can complain. Um, believe that God really isn't good. The sin that kept the Israelites out of the promised land. So you stub your toe and ask, who left that dumbbell out anyway? Or we can deny, uh, ignore the pain, medicate it in some way, refuse to talk or think about it, so I'm going to fill my life with work or or something that helps me not think about it. And so you, you stub your toe and say, well, I must have deserved it, now let's go find the Tylenol. Or we can try to fix it, we can play God, and um, b try to try to find solutions for everything in the world. You stub your toe and create an invention that prohibits dumbbells from ever being left on the floor ever again right and i 'm sure there's other ways to fill that in between between the problem and the solution, but they 're all quite dreadful because you think about it, what are we here for what Why are we on this earth after all? The, the catechism question answers it quite well. It's to worship God and enjoy Him forever. Well, too often for me, pain, sorrow, sin interrupts my worship instead of deepening it. I think you could all agree pain and sin and sorrow, when God is with you, your deepest worship comes out of the hardest seasons. The most meaningful worship comes after profound pain. So if we want to worship and enjoy God in every season, we must lament. All right, with that long introduction, let's dive in, recognizing that this is the kind of prayer that we should be praying. We're going to look at David's posture before God in verses 1 and 2, his plight and In verses 3 and 4. And then his plea in verses 5 through 7. So what is David's posture as he comes before God? could probably describe it in two words. He's being audible and he's being honest. With my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. If you compare our relationship with God with our relationship with each other, when do you know that someone's not doing so well? It's it's often when they get quiet, right? What's up? Haven't heard from you lately. You seem quiet today. What's going on? And it's the same uh, with us. When you're in a really bad way, you have to begin by believing God actually really is listening actually really wants to hear what you're going to say. And I think that's not typically our default understanding of God. We are so prone to thinking that for God to really listen to us, we have to work for it in some way. Get to the place where God can hear us. And we we just feel it in subconscious ways. Of course we wouldn't say that. We know that, We have strong confidence to come before the throne of grace for mercy and help in time of need. But we don't tend to actually feel it. Guilt, shame, lies we believe, sometimes just spiritual coldness in our hearts lead us to believe. We've got to work for God to listen to us. Difficulty has a way of making us feel insignificant, left out, not worth listening to. And just the fact that Pain is never neat or tidy or fun to work through. It makes it easier to... Let's just not talk about that. But God dealt with all our problems already. Right? At the cross. Jesus dealt with every minute detail of your life that is not in sync with his kingdom. Paid for in full. And the proof for that... It's the empty grave. And so he's big enough to listen to every problem, every question. Even if it's God, I don't even know if I believe in you right now. That needs to be voiced to God. So it's audible and it's, it's honest. We don't find David um, doing what the, God, what the other nations had to do, where they kind of had to butter up their God. And this is so visible in the, in the context between uh, Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. They're trying to do whatever it takes to get their God to listen. And Elijah says, God, show yourself. So David is not laying there saying, oh God, these uh, stalagmites these that I'm laying on in this cave, they're your amazing handiwork. He's just being very honest about what's in his heart. So, obviously, we know we're, we're supposed to rejoice in everything, every circumstance. The question is, how? What does that look like? Paul, who wrote, we're supposed to rejoice, also said, we felt like we'd been handed the sentence of death. So, really, when we withhold raw, honest expressions of pain from God, we're, we're saying, God, I don't think you're really interested in my problems. That's David's posture. Now his plight. Uh, in verses 3 to 4, we discover David is out of strength, he's scared, and he's alone. So, brief um, history review of what's going on when he wrote this psalm. To help us understand the weight that he's under, Samuel, anointed David, said, God has promised that you're going to be king of Israel. And then, nobody agrees with that. Nothing happens to confirm that promise. In fact, if anything, everything happens to say that promise was false, was not true. So in this psalm, it says he's in the cave. Um, There's two different caves he's in, and we don't know which one, but he has escaped from Achish at Gath where he pretended to be crazy to get away. And then in 1 Samuel, either it's 1 Samuel 22 or 1 Samuel 24, one of those two caves that he's in. In that context, he's betrayed three times by people he should have been able to trust. So Doeg the Edomite finds out that he was consorting with the priest, and uh, 85 priests of the household of Ahimelech get killed because of David. Imagine that emotional burden. And then God told David that the men of Keilah were going to betray him to Saul after he had gone and rescued the men of Keilah from the Philistines who were uh, attacking their wheat fields, robbing their threshing floors. And then the Ziphites go and tell Saul, uh, yeah, tell Saul that David is hiding among them. So there's this emotional burden of being betrayed over and over. Besides the burden of this unfulfilled promise, year after year, any of us would start to think, did Samuel actually hear from God when he anointed me? I, I, I don't think so. I think I should just maybe maybe stop believing it. And so no wonder he says in the path where I walk they've hidden a trap for me. It feels like God is asking him to do something that's doomed from the get-go. And there's just there's no making sense of this situation, no revelation from heaven as to why this is going on. It's easy for us cuz we read the problem and than the solution, like five minutes apart. But for David, there's years of just no answer. No answer. What is going on? He didn't see the end of the story. And at a moment like this, it's quite possible that he thought he would never escape with his life. So David takes comfort in this fact. God knows my way. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. The almighty God is paying attention to him and can empathize with him. And it's, you know, it's interesting. It's not just that God can empathize, but that he must empathize. How do we know that? Because Jesus Christ showed us the Father. And he told us what's in his very heart. What drives him? What, what moves him emotionally? He says, I'm gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. And so it's not that God, if he decides to, is able to be moved with compassion. It's that God cannot almost help himself, but gush forth steadfast love for those who put their trust in him. That is his very nature. Slow to anger, abundant and steadfast love for those who fear him, is what he told Moses. So when you're honest with God, you are honest with the one who cannot, without breaking his own character, according to his own nature expressed in Jesus, abandon or forget anyone who trusts in him. David says he's strength, out of strength, scared and alone. Look to the right and see, he says. Who should be on the right, on his right hand? Throughout the Psalms, we find expressions like the Lord is, the sh- is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at, at your right hand. That's the place of strength. That's the place where your, your advocate is supposed to be. And David looks there and it feels like nobody's there. He, he feels truly alone. Every believer walks through valleys like this where we know God is with us, but we do not feel it. You know, our our culture has glorified the kind of the pioneer spirit. I got my shotgun, I got my dog, I'll be good. That's not David. He says, God, if nobody is with me, how do I know that you are with me? He's longing for someone to care for his soul. It's not a path he wants to walk alone. But he's, he's expressing this to God because he does have confidence that God is with him and can hear him. Something that has stood out to me over the past year or two maybe. Is just how God knows how to reveal himself to each one of us personally. To bridge the gap between the fact that we know he's with us. And the fact that we don't feel he's with us. And so he, he says to Nathanael, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. I don't know what was going on with Nathanael when he was under the fig tree, but when Jesus said that, that was significant. We know that because Nathanael turns around and says, you're the Messiah. You're the King of Israel. Or think about how he interacted with Peter after Peter has denied him three times. Any of us feel like we've made a mess of God's calling on our lives? We can talk to Peter about that. Metaphorically, Jesus comes back. How does he come back? While Peter's fishing. Interesting. Peter was fishing the first time Jesus called him. After a night of fruitless fishing. Interesting. Peter had a night of fruitless fishing the first time Jesus called him. After telling Peter, hey, throw your, throw your net on the other side, just like the first time he had called him, he, Jesus reenacts the scene of Peter's first calling to say, Peter, I'm still calling you. And he reenacts the three denials when he says three times, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep to say, Peter, I'm still calling you. He, Jesus knows how to personally reveal himself to each one of us. So that not only do we know he's with us, we can actually feel it. And I think lament is one way to wait. To wait with hope until we actually feel it. David's plea in the last stanza, verses 5 through 7. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge my portion in the land of the living. This is where the tone of the psalm kind of shifts, where we see he, he's getting some ground under his feet. He's able now to say what is true about God with confidence again. You are my portion. It's interesting, interesting term there, and I think it's inheritance language in the Bible. Whenever we hear that, you are my portion. So for us, Inheritance isn't super significant. You get a sum of money, whatever your parents saved up after they pass. For for the biblical um, time frame, inheritance is everything. It's your identity. It's your value. It's your calling. It's your family history. It's all tied up in this idea of inheritance. Um, And the picture that comes to me to think of what this means is: you wake up in the middle of the night, you smell smoke. You get your family out of the house, and the house bursts into flame, flames before your eyes. And everything you saved up for, everything you have, goes up in flames. But you take stock, and you still have your family, and you still have your life. And you say, That is my portion. It's what matters more than everything else in life. And for David, he says, God, that is you. You are my portion. And I think this has got to be the purest expression of Christian joy. I have nothing left, no strength, no courage, no companion, but I have God, and God is good. God is my portion. I've been asked twice by, by Muslim friends, why do Christians sing at funerals? It's kind of a head-scratcher. If you think about it, and I love that question because, yeah, we we grieve. We know we need to grieve, but we don't grieve as those who have no hope, because at the center of what we, we believe, there is an empty tomb. We believe, in verifiable terms, not just because it helps us, but because it's true, that the greatest tragedy of the whole universe was overcome. Jesus dealt with all our sin. Jesus dealt with every problem. And then he got up from the grave. Here's another way to think about it. Why did Jeremiah write the book of Lamentations? It didn't change his circumstances. He's he's lamenting the fact that the city of God is getting destroyed. You, You know what the city of God is? Jerusalem? That's... That's everything God planned from the beginning of time. That's his promise to Abraham. His promises are growing up in smoke. He's letting his enemies smash the precious thing that he planned. Why did Jeremiah write the book of Lamentations? It wasn't as a therapy exercise to just kind of scream into a pillow. It's because of what he knew about God. He says, though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. The very core of God's heart is not vindictive. I'll get you back. But it's ready to gush out in steadfast love. Lamentations is kind of neat book because every chapter is an acrostic so the 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 verses follow the letters of the hebrew alphabet and how they start there's five chapters and the middle chapter chapter three does that twice it's twice as long you can see it in the way it's laid out in english so it's like hmm, i wonder what's at the center here's what I, what's at the center chapter 3 21 but this i call to mind and therefore i have hope The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. Two and a half chapters of lament. This. Two and a half chapters more of lament. Jeremiah knew Something about how lament helps you hang on to the character and promises of God. And so with with this established once again in his heart, David finally makes his first request. Three parts. Listen, deliver me from my persecutors, and bring me out of prison. Each one of them has a reason. He says, attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors. Or they are too strong for me, bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. I know from my experience, I tend to start with the request, God, I'm in trouble, please help. But there's something that has happened through the trouble where I subconsciously don't really think God is going to help. The trouble has proven to me something That the cross and resurrection of Jesus has not yet proven to my heart. And so for David, coming to God and being honest first, reestablishes to him, this is what God is like. God is ready to hear. God is ready to answer even when nothing makes sense. So if, if you're someone who likes steps, here is four steps for how we lament. This is from uh, Mark Vrograpp, who wrote a great book on this. Number one, turn to God, not yourself. Number two, tell Him your trouble using honest, audible prayers. Number three, ask boldly for help, and then finally, choose to trust. Choose to trust. I wonder, for each one of you what that what that problem is it doesn't have to be something that you feel is worth sharing when it's time for prayer requests to be something that's very significant in in how we subconsciously think about God so I'll share a brief story for for myself for how lament has has helped me to, to restore my confidence in God a uh, good friend of mine grew up in a very difficult difficult situation many different foster homes and he's been a tremendous blessing in my life um, fills a, a unique role with a unique perspective and, and has challenged me to think in unique ways um, and through a mental health crisis, had a car accident four months ago, and has been paralyzed in the hospital ever since. And here I am going to, to healing and deliverance conferences, and, and all excited about the, the wonderful things God can do. And yet, in my heart, I'm saying, God, I don't, I don't really know. You haven't healed Him. In fact, it just kept kept getting worse and worse and worse. What am I supposed to do? Why would I why would I keep praying? It's it's not working, right? And so subconsciously, I start lowering my expectations of the God who created heaven and earth and is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we can ask or think or imagine according to the power that is work, at work in us and who has chosen to get glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. And I start thinking of him in a slightly different way. And I just kind of pray small prayers. but lament is like god something is not right here i do not understand and you need to fix it right god this is your problem what are you going to do about it and when and and at that point there's something about that that god always responds and says now you're talking now you're talking to the God who I really am? Right? And I don't know what God is going to do, but I do have a promise that he will get glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. So I don't know what problem you're facing. Here's one more story. Lori was in the middle of a quandary. She had grown up in being a good Christian in a good Christian home, but as she put it, her version of sexual brokenness was that she felt the desire to be seen and known and loved by gals, not by guys. And she came to this crisis point. Do I kill myself? Or do I come out as a lesbian atheist? And in God's providence, she met a woman who started asking her questions to say, now now wait a minute. Is, is your biggest need, you know, you know everything you're supposed to know as a good Christian girl, is your biggest need to feel a desire to be known and loved by the opposite sex? Or is your biggest need to be known and loved by Jesus? And as she came alongside Lori and helped her see Jesus as the lover of her soul, something started to shift in her. And she said this is how it happened. It happened through good, old-fashioned spiritual disciplines. And the two primary ones that God used were lament and listening prayer. I think that's really interesting because it helped her see she didn't need to fix herself. She couldn't turn to Jesus in her own strength. It was, it was saying, I'm broken. I need help that allowed her to experience and know the love of Christ and see the power of God for true holiness. So, what is that in your life right now? It's it's nothing complicated to pour out our hearts before God, but maybe two challenges to close with, things that often keep us from... Having the posture David here did here in psalm one forty two and lower our expectations of what God wants to do, now, the first challenge is less. let's let 's do less fixing and more lamenting. I say this as one who is a bona fide fixer and doer i want I see a problem, I want to do something, I want to create a system that won 't let it happen again. Um, I hope my children grow up and can say that they will, can come to me and not just find a solution, but a friend. Because that's the way the gospel is shaped. That God didn't just fix us from his lofty throne in heaven, but he came and walked among us. He came as one of us. He was acquainted with our grief. He brought good news for the brokenhearted. Proclaimed liberty to the captives. He said, "Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven." So, l- less less fixing, more lamenting, puts us in the path for God's grace to come and to truly heal us and truly help us. And then, secondly, and this gets a li- even more pr- more practical. Speaking for myself, I'm most of the time too busy, too preoccupied, too distracted, to to really be honest with God. And I need to find a place of deep rest in God and carve out time to be still and know that God is God, to find the lover of my soul as all that I need, my portion in the land of the living. And, And from that place, I can be honest with him. God is God. We are not. He's good enough, wise enough, strong enough to trust before the resolution to our problems. I'll close with this psalm, another psalm of David, where I think he has found that rest before the resolution to his problem. It's psalm 131. O oh Lord, You join in praying with me, Heavenly Father. I pray your richest blessing on this wonderful congregation and and what you're doing here, Father. I pray specifically for each of my brothers and sisters here to know you in a deep way. That, Lord, they will not pray. Distracted, preoccupied prayers, but pray real, genuine prayers that are in line with who you are and what your promises are. I pray, Lord, that for each one of them in this coming season, you'll open up who you are to them in a deeper and more powerful way that as they see you with the witness of your spirit in their hearts. And as they see the brokenness and the pain and the sorrow and the sin of this world with your spirit in their hearts. You'll keep each of them, Lord, from the, the, the lulling or the, the dampening effect Satan wants to bring on us. Where we just become okay with praying small prayers and praying maybe less than honest prayers. But God, that you'll give a a zeal to each one of them to hold you accountable, if you will, to, to fulfill your promises. God, that you'll give them vision, give them dreams, give them insight into what your heart is for them as a congregation and for this whole community. That they will see where you want to take them, Father. that they will see that you truly will do great and amazing things in and through each of them. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you again. Lord, bless you all.